Welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Advent is a season of preparation, anticipation, or expectation. And this has been the common thread of our gospel readings this season. On the first Sunday of Advent, we heard Jesus' teaching about the coming return, about this expectation and coming return of the judgment of the Son of Man from Matthew chapter 24. Last week, we saw John's wilderness ministry anticipating Jesus' public ministry from Matthew chapter 3. And next Sunday, we'll hear about the righteous preparation of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, from Matthew chapter 1. And this morning, our gospel reading picks up the continuing story of John the Baptist that we started last week from Matthew chapter 11. John is in prison, and Jesus sums up the ministry of his cousin. He says that John is the greatest and the last in the long line of prophets, prophets who proclaimed preparation, anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. And if you have ears to hear, Jesus said, John is Elijah who is to come, the last and the greatest prophet. Yet something new has come. Jesus says, something new has come. Jesus invites us all, he invites all the people of the cities to hear, to follow Jesus into the fulfillment of all of John's expectation. And the one who is least in Jesus's kingdom, he or she will be greater than John. No longer looking forward to the banquet of the king, but sitting at table with King Jesus in his kingdom. Matthew chapter 11 is the coming together of what comes before, what comes before perfectly summarized in the ministry of John and the, in the violent persecution of his ministry that will end with John's execution just a few chapters later in Matthew 14. John's ministry comes together with Jesus's ministry. The last and the first are coming together here in Matthew chapter 11. Preparation, anticipation, expectation meets fulfillment, culmination, joy. Okay, so enough of all that. That's, that's kind of introduction to the sermon. That's introduction. So we're following in Matthew's gospel, if we're paying attention to the wider context, we're following in chapter 10, the missionary discourse. Jesus sends out the 70 to to go out into the world to be missionaries and ambassadors of the king. And in chapter 13, we'll have another discourse, the, the parable discourse, okay? So Matthew chapter 11, where our sermon texts come from, and Matthew chapter 12 are this, are these narratives in between these two discourses, Our gospel reading from chapter 11 ends with a very short parable, a parable that anticipates what is to come over the next three chapters, okay? So it ends with a parable, and in this mini parable that I want to focus on today, Jesus asked the question of John's violent generation. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 11, here's the question. But to what shall I compare this generation? 
It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. So compare and like. This is, this is parable introduction, okay? This is a parable, and here's the parable. Children calling in the marketplace to their playmates, and they said this, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. That's it. That's the parable. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Children in this parable, and, and, he, and he says we, okay, so there's at least more than one. So at least two children are playing music and singing for other children. When they play a happy song, all of the other kids, they either sit on their hands or they whine, okay? Here's, here's the picture. They don't respond correctly to the song. I don't want to be at this party, right? You familiar with that kind of attitude? When they play a sad song, all of the other kids are on their feet with smiles on their faces dancing around. As Solomon said, there is a season for mourning and a season for rejoicing, but we have no idea about which is which. Here's the parable. You've probably experienced this before, maybe even this morning. You've slaved for hours on a wonderful, joyful feast to eat together with family and friends, but there is always at least one child, and they can be a 40-year-old child, who whines and complains about having to eat and enjoy a feast. Or you're trying to wind down at the end of a long day, and all your kids want to do is jump on you and wrestle and laugh a lot. Children are often bad at reading social, social situations and responding appropriately. Sit still and be quiet during the boring sermon in church. Run around and play in the park. But let's not be too quick to pick on the kids. Kids are usually much better than we are at being joyful. And they're much better at being sad and getting over it. And unless you do your worst, unless I do my worst, children don't bottle up their emotions and let them stew and fester and brood. Kids don't get depressed on a cold, rainy day. We teach them to do that. Kids go, they put their coat on, and they stomp and laugh in puddles. That's what kids do. They belly laugh at silly movies. When was the last time you remember having a belly laugh, an uncontrollable laugh? They roll around on the floor on the soft padded carpet. We adults know how many germs are in that carpet, and we wonder if there are hardwood floors underneath so we can rip it out. More than not knowing when to rejoice and when to lament, this generation in this parable laugh and they dance at funerals, they respond with violence to the most joyful event in human history, the incarnation of the Son of God, the returning King. They respond to their children's appeal to laugh and play with frustration and anger. They weep and mourn because their political candidate didn't win or their football team didn't make the playoff. But they've never wept because of their sin. They've never even considered coming to their priest or their spouse or their friend for the right of reconciliation or good, just plain old-fashioned reconciliation. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a sad song, and you did not cry. 
This is where all of us live. Alexander Schmemann says it like this, the only real fall of man is his non-Eucharistic life, his non-Thanksgiving-filled life in a non-Eucharistic world. We cry when we should dance. We keep on sinning. We even give hearty approval to sinning, as the Apostle Paul says. And God forbid we ever weep because of our sinning. Verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. Clearly. (laughs) The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wilderness wandering, hair shirt wearing, fasting and weeping John sang a sad song and nobody repented. Jesus the King proclaimed the year of the Lord's welcome. He invited people from all over to join in on the joyful Eucharistic melody. He's playing a great song and nobody danced. So what now? So what now? How can we, we who live in this wicked generation, this evil generation, we who weep about politics and don't weep over our sin, we who exalt pornography and don't exalt or ever mention the name of Jesus to the unbelieving world, how can we wake up? How can we wake up? I have three points for you. Three points. For our wonderful physicians in the room, the first is a diagnostic point, a diagnostic point, and the last two points are the prescription, okay? So for those who are not doctors or physicians, what's wrong? And then two, how can we begin to treat what's wrong? Okay, that's how I speak, okay? What's wrong and how can we begin to treat what's wrong? So first, what's wrong? Pay attention to your rejoicing. Pay attention to your mourning. This is a diagnostic statement. Pay attention. Do you believe the lie that you should be outraged all the time? You wake up every day and watch, listen, or read a list of things that everyone around you has told you that you're supposed to be mad or sad about. Come on, John, you can't be serious. You're telling me that we should mourn over our sin, turn around and follow your cousin who's from the middle of nowhere? Don't you know that your negativity is really what's wrong with Roman society? What stirs you up and why? Why does it stir you up? What makes you really sad? At the end of an exhausting day, what makes you respond with distraction, with self-gratification, with self-medication? We spend all of our days living the story of self-fulfillment and self-empowerment only to find at the end, even my best day, even my best self cannot fulfill my deepest longings. Pay close attention to your sadness. Also, pay close attention to what makes you happy. When is the last time you danced? It's a real rhetorical question. You don't have to answer right now, but I want you to think about that. Was the last time you remember truly jumping for joy way back in 2007? 
Substitute the year for the last year your team won the championship or the last time your political candidate won the election. Way back in 08, 07, whatever it is. Come on, Jesus, you can't be serious. We're just paying attention to the real world. We're taking seriously all of the horrible atrocities in the world. We're weeping and fasting. Meanwhile, you and your disciples are turning water into wine at weddings, feasting with all kinds of deplorable people in all kinds of deplorable places. Why would we waste our time feasting and rejoicing when the world is going to hell? We need to be missional. So do you, want to have, do you want to have true and lasting joy with Jesus today? This diagnosis is pretty tough, okay? With Jesus. Do you want to mourn the things that Jesus tells you to mourn? If you take your list of grievances to mourn from NPR or Fox News, you will never be happy again for the rest of your life. And you won't grieve for sin. I can guarantee it. Just like John's generation, we are all really bad at this. We cry when we're supposed to laugh. We dance when we're supposed to lament. So the next time you cry, pay attention. Write it down in a journal. Go talk to someone. The next time you dance, pay attention. Don't let the next time you dance be when Shadira graduates from high school in four years which I encourage you all to do that. It's really awesome and fun, but dance a little. You can't fix indulgence with asceticism. You can't, you can't fix having too much of stuff with getting rid of it all. You can't fix gluttony with extreme weight loss. You can't fix your feelings of guilt for enjoying the comforts of life with making a big donation at the end of the year. Our fasting and our feasting are not against each other. They're just out of place. We just do them at the wrong time. So how can we begin to put them back into place? So that's the diagnosis. Here's a little help. Point number two, practice the church calendar. Practice the church calendar. The Christian year is designed to rehearse fasting and feasting, waiting and rejoicing, anticipation and fulfillment. And like John and Jesus, fasting and feasting aren't against each other. They're not against each other. We act out the drama of redemption every year in the church to train our hearts and minds to know when to feast and when to fast. Our lives don't always neatly follow the calendar. We all know this. Some of us experience years and years of depression. Some penitential seasons, like the one we're in right now, are filled with many, many occasions for joy. Some Christmas seasons are cold and lonely but the longer we rehearse the true story of the world in the church calendar, then we'll begin to know when to dance when the flute is playing. We'll know when to weep and mourn our sin, and this cannot be done alone. Let me say that again. This cannot be done alone. 
The church calendar, life-giving fasting and feasting must be done together. Morning and evening corporate prayer. Most of us, most of the time, will drift in and out of the world if we are not rehearsing the story together. Over and over again. To quote a Southern Baptist on the importance of practicing the church calendar, Trevin Wax says, we, note, note the plural here, we need to make sure we're countering the depressing story of this world by what we do, not just what we say or think. So practice the church calendar and finally read the stories and repent. I got some exegete. This is my favorite point ever, okay? This is, you guys know this. I love this point, but I got it from the text, so let me show it to you. Read the stories and repent. But to what shall I compare this generation, Jesus says. This question Jesus asks in verse 16 of chapter 11 begins a series of stories in chapters 11 and 12, and he's talking to this generation over and over again. And what are these conversations about? They're about, wait for it, the Bible. <laughs> they're about the Bible. It's really great. They, they're about the Bible. King David ate the showbread. He ate the bread of the presence. Jonah preached and the people of Nineveh repented. The queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to seek the wisdom of Solomon. And all of these stories, as they were read and remembered, were meant to lead to repentance. God is present with us, so dance and eat and rejoice in his holy place. Stop being such a funky, Sabbath-keeping hypocrite. Those outside the law, the worst people imaginable, repented, and Jonah didn't like it. Read the story. Don't read the children's book story. Read the real story. He didn't like it. He didn't know when to rejoice and when to mourn. Remember, the story ends, again, it ends with Jonah whining. Repent, be like the Ninevites, be like the Ninevites. Gentiles will come from far off and rejoice in the law of the Lord and in the king's wisdom, return to the king and stop groveling at Caesar's feet. But reading the stories alone, Bible study alone isn't enough. We have to respond. We must read the stories and repent. The study of Holy Scripture must lead to more humility, or you're not doing it right. Before God and before each other, always and every time, and more than that, the study of Holy Scripture must always lead to Jesus. Remember that story of David eating the bread of the presence, Jesus recalls? Chapter 12, verse 6. Something greater than the temple is here, right here. I am the presence of God with man, Jesus says. Remember that story of Jonah? Verse 41 of chapter 12. Something greater than Jonah is here. Remember all that wisdom of Solomon, verse 42. Something greater than Solomon is here. You get the point. All of these stories are about who? They're about Jesus. So read the whole Bible with Jesus in mind. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Read the stories, read the Gospels, and repent. 
David ate the bread of the presence in 1 Samuel 21. He was a partaker of this meal with us by faith. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus said, by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 